0: Shortly after I was saved at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh, I saw an image on a poster that I've never been able to forget. It's like indelible in my mind, and I don't want to forget it. Here's the image. At the bottom of the poster were these scholarly types looking over like scrolls of Scripture, like they were studying them, but they weren't so much studying as they were fighting with each other. You could see the look on their faces, and they were pointing at each other, and the picture was one of conflict. And up at the top of the picture were these people walking toward a cliff, and this image showed people falling off the cliff into the gaping fires of an everlasting hell. I've tried to find that image over the years. I've searched for it. I've Googled it. I've never been able to find it. This past week... I went up to one of our young adults. Her name is Abby Conguson. She's an artist. Uh, She's part of our Mainspring ministry. And I described this image to her, and I said, Abby, would you be able to paint that for us? And when she sent it to me, it gave me goosebumps and put tears in my eyes. Abby's here today somewhere. Abby, can you just raise your hand? There she is over there. Let's just thank her for using her gifts. Uh, When I asked if I could acknowledge her, I could see that she hesitated, and, and I said, Abby, let me tell you why I want to acknowledge you. God's given you gifts, and God's given everybody gifts, and perhaps this will help all of us to say, I might not have that gift, but I want to use what God has given to me. When I thanked her, she said this, thank you for reaching out about this. I'm honored to be able to share my talents with Edgewood. In all of my projects, I say, solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Friends, here's the challenge for us today, to make sure we stay on message and on mission by keeping the gospel the main thing. We must resist going off on each other and quit our quarreling spirits. We could say it like this, the main thing is to keep the gospel the main thing. Thing. Now, before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that Heather and Daisy Felixiac are here today. Uh, Heather and Daisy, can you just raise your hand so we can see where you are? There they are, over there. Let's just welcome them back. Yes, welcome back. Pastor Andy, who served faithfully here for 15-some years, uh, is serving as an executive pastor up in Racine. Uh, They came back, I think, for a birthday party. Thank you for gathering with us for worship. Now, as we begin, I want to invite us to pray a prayer found in Scripture. It's a prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples in response to a question. Here's their question. Lord, teach us how to pray. We know this prayer as the Lord's Prayer. This prayer is found in both Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, and it's a little bit different in each of those places. And then over the years, there's been various versions of this prayer. Uh, I'm going to have us pray a particular version. I want to invite you not just to recite it, but let's pray this prayer. To get our perspective right, let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, last weekend we considered six portraits, six images, six word pictures from the first half of 2 Timothy chapter 2. These pictures help us see our identity, who we are, and our purpose, why we are here. So if you're a born-again believer, this is who you are. You are a fearless child, a faithful steward, a focused soldier, a fit athlete, a fruitful farmer, and a fervent student. We're going to continue in worship now by reading God's Word together. If you're able, I invite you to stand. Uh, we're in the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to pick it up in verse 14, and let's just pause and reflect on what we get to do here. This is an act of worship We approach his word with reverence, thankful that we serve a God who's spoken and he's put in a book what he wants us to know and we're gonna do our best to understand what God's word has to say in its context. We're gonna do our best to understand the culture in which it was written and then we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to apply his word in our lives to the culture in which we live. Let's read together now. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Oh, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Thank you for reading God's word. You can be seated. We're gonna see eight ways from this passage that are calling us to stay on message because the main thing is to keep the gospel the main thing. Paul starts by telling Timothy to remind people of truth. We're a people who forget. That's why the Bible is filled with reminders about the need to remember. Notice verse 14, remind them of these things. To remind literally means to put into remembrance. It means to keep on reminding. To remember means to recall, to mark, to set aside. But in the Bible, remembering is not just bringing something to mind, like, oh, yeah, I remember that. No, there's more to it than that. It implies a change of behavior so that our lives line up with what we've been reminded of. So then, remembering is not just this passive attitude. It's a proactive activity which leads to action. We're to ponder and then put into practice. We're called to remember so we can recalibrate our lives, to repent if we need to, to line back up according to what we've just remembered. If you go back just a bit, look at verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. He's saying, remember the gospel and he reminds Timothy that he's bound, he's in chains, he's about to be martyred, and he says, but the word of God is not bound. We see the purpose of reminding also in 2 Timothy 1.6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. In the book of 2 Peter, Peter's reminding people, he says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. I want to stir you up by way of... reminder, That's one of the reasons we gather with God's people each week, because we need to be reminded because we're a people who forget. Friends, the main thing is to keep the gospel the main thing. And notice next, he says, charge people not to quarrel. Uh, Wouldn't you agree we live in a caustic, quarreling, canceling kind of culture right now? And apparently, this was a big issue in the church at Ephesus as well. Verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Drop down to verses 23 and 24, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be Quarrelsome. The word charge is quite strong. It means to testify earnestly, to admonish. To quarrel is when we have a war with our words. Notice Paul says that this does no good. It amounts to nothing useful. But he also adds it actually damages it ruins the hearers that's a strong word it means catastrophe or to pull down or overthrow now paul had previously called out quarrelers in first timothy chapter 6 if you go back just to the chapter two chapters before we read in verse 4 he is an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce so this is what quarreling produces. Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Romans 14:1 urges us not to quarrel over opinions. Now, if you spend any time online... <laughs> I mean, you know how, how social media is far from sociable. This week, I called an Edgewood member. His name is Chuck Henson. I wanted to get his perspective about all the friction he sees on Facebook. The reason I reached out to Chuck is he moderates three different Facebook pages, including I Love Milan and Retro Quad Cities. So I said, Chuck, how do you handle uncharitable comments? How do you handle people who are committed to quarreling? His response was so helpful. I wrote it down. This is what he said. Everyone has an opinion, but very few have facts. (laughs) And those who share their opinions are often emotionally charged. He's had to hide the comment section at times, he's had to even ban some keyboard warriors. This happened to me yesterday. I posted something about life beginning at conception. And there were a lot of people like, yes, right on, amen, way to go. And then later in the afternoon, somebody just went off. And I decided to hide that comment, not because I'm not open to hearing what others say, but because I didn't want to start a war Of words on my wall. I'm reminded of a Christian who tried to encourage a guy who was feeling low. He started off by telling him how much God loved him. Well, this put a tear in the man's eye. Here's how the conversation went. I'll let him tell it. I then asked him, are you a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, or what? The guy said, I'm a Christian. I said, me too, small world, Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. Me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, wow, me too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? (laughs) He said, Northern conservative Baptist. Wow, I said, that's amazing. Northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist or Northern conservative free will Baptist? He said, northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist. I said, remarkable. Northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes region? Or northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist, Eastern region? He said, northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes region. I said, a miracle! Northern conservative fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes region, Council of 1879. Or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He responded Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, Die, heretic, <laughs> and pushed him over the rail. Oh man, we laugh. But don't we do things similarly? We think we're right which means the other person is what? Our opinions become moral matters. We declare, and anybody who's different, we judge on them. We might do it secretly. We might create distance with them because they think about something differently than we do. Brothers and sisters, we've been banned by God from being caustic in our quarreling. Why? Because the main thing is to keep the gospel the main thing. Number three, rightly handle God's truth. So the best way to not quarrel or to fall into false doctrine is to be tethered to God's truth. Join me in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That phrase, do your best, is to endeavor eagerly with zeal to get after it, to keep working at it until it's accomplished. We should be eager to present ourselves to God as if we say, God, here I am. I'm yours and God, I'm doing my best to not only read your word, but to understand your word. I am your worker and use me for your glory. I don't want to be ashamed before you or before others. Incidentally, this is the same word used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where we read, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's linger on that phrase, rightly handling the word of truth. To rightly handle in the Greek is the word orthos, where we get orthopod or orthopedics. It comes from two words meaning straight and to cut with precision and accuracy. It was used for what a surgeon does, how a mason builds a straight wall, how someone cuts a path through a forest, and even for how a father would slice bread in his home and distribute it to his family. And so all believers and pastors in particular are called to be straight with the scriptures so we can find nourishment from the bread of life. At Edgewood, we're committed to handle God's word with reverence as we preach straightforward from the Bible because we're seeking God's approval. And as such, we are not ashamed of the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. As we said when we were going through the opening chapters of Genesis, when God says it, that settles it. Beth and I lead a growth group on Wednesday nights, and this past week we went around the circle and we shared about the passages that have meant a lot to us in the past or God has brought up recently, and we spent time talking about the passages and how God has used them. I was so struck by the love of the Bible in our group and in our church everyone answered. They opened their Bibles and were ready to go. One guy shared about reading the same passage from Matthew chapter 6 almost every night before he goes to sleep. It helps him deal with anxiety. Another guy in the group said these words. I've never heard it put like this. He's referring to the book of Philippians. Here's what I've heard before when people talk about the book of Philippians. Like, yeah, the book of Philippians is one of my favorite books. Or the book of Philippians is filled with joy. Or I like the book of Philippians. Here's what he said. The book of Philippians is necessary for me. And I stopped him and I said, You said the word necessary. And he said, yes, because if I don't park in the book of Philippians, I can become negative and I forget that I'm called to be a servant. Friends, are you aware, many of you are, that this verse, 2 Timothy 2.15, serves as an acrostic for the Awana discipleship ministry. Approved workmen are not ashamed Pastor Ed started Awana here at Edgewood, get this, 44 years ago. And he ran point for this ministry for 21 years. Sheila Kershack is now leading the ministry. Over the years, Jim Sims and Ed Kite served as commanders for many years. I asked Sheila, how many kids are in Awana? She said approximately 150 kids come on Wednesday nights. That's three years to sixth grade during the school year. Over 50 leaders are investing in this gospel-centered ministry. And then I said, Sheila, how many kids have been discipled through the ministry of Awana? over the past 44 years here, and she couldn't come up with a number. I I can't either. It's just multiplied thousands of people who've benefited from the ministry of Awana. When I asked Sheila about its impact, this is what she said, quote, Awana is the premier child discipleship program out there. We'll continue to reach boys and girls with the gospel of Christ and to train them to serve him for their whole lives. We will also come alongside parents to help them disciple their children as well. I love what God's doing in and through the children's ministry here at Edgewood. By the way, Vacation Bible School Super Summer Slam, which begins on Thursday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Saturday. As of Friday, more than 215 kids have already registered, which is way more than registered at this time last year. So if you've been in Iwana as a child, or you've served in Iwana, or you're presently serving in Iwana, I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Go ahead and stand and look around the room and see the impact that this ministry has had. Let's just give God the glory for this ministry. This week, I asked members on the Edgewood Facebook page to share how God has used Awana in their life. Let me pick some. Pastor Kyle's seated over there. This is what Kyle said. It's where I learned the majority of the Scripture I have memorized today. Jessica Trowbridge, who leads a ministry here in the Quad Cities called Safe Families for Children, wrote this. It's where I learned almost all the verses I have committed to memory as well as the order of the books of the Bible. I started in cubbies, and I still have my vest. <laughs> Aaron Langworthy, he's teaching the mainspring class, our young adults class, in the conference room. Aaron wrote this. I got saved in a And Aaron and his wife Amanda are building their team to go to Uganda to serve as missionaries. Friends, all Christians are either approved workers, according to this verse, or ashamed wanderers. And mark this, to be an approved worker doesn't happen by accident. And it's going to take more than just coming to a service once a week. We have to be in God's word. We have to be in community with others in a growth group. We have to take God's word seriously. We need to know the scriptures in order to grow in sanctification. Oh, there's more. Number four, avoid irreverent babble. If we want to keep the gospel the main thing, we must avoid word wars Uh, Join me in verses 16 and 8 through 18. Avoid irreverent babble. Why? Well, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like, yikes, gangrene. And then he lists two false teachers, and we've pointed this out before. He calls out people by name in each chapter of this short book. Here it's Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth. What were they saying? Well, they're saying that the resurrection has already happened, meaning believers, once you die, it's over. You're not going to be raised. There's, there's no eternal life. And notice the result. They're upsetting the faith of some. And so that word avoid means don't engage, shun, be distant from that. A reverent babble refers to loud, empty, profane, and godless talk. Now, this had to be a big issue in Ephesus because if you look at chapter 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, if you look over at verse 20, avoid the irreverent babble. Friends, our words can wound deeply and false doctrine can unleash a communicable disease. To say it another way, error can make you ill, can make you ill. So what's gangrene? Gangrene is like this consuming sore begins eating away at the body. It causes body tissue to die, often leading to the loss of limbs, either as they just fall off or they need to be amputated. Here Paul calls out these two false teachers. We know from 1 Timothy 1 that Hymenaeus shipwrecked his own faith. By the way, I don't believe they lost their salvation. I believe they never had their salvation. I and mean, when we read that in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Brothers and sisters, false teaching has been unleashed in churches today. Earlier this month, a mainline church in Minnesota, if I said the name of the denomination, you would immediately know it. During a worship service, they recited a creed together. It's called the Sparkle Creed. This irreverent babble is loaded with outright blasphemy. In my sermon notes, I had typed out the first line to the creed. And then I hit backspace because I didn't want to say it out loud. I can't say it. It is so blasphemous. My spirit won't allow me to say it. It's sinfully sacrilegious. Now, I don't want to ever say something that isn't true. I don't want to just say, well, I saw it on the Internet. It must be true, right? So I forced myself to watch it. And this pastor said these words in a church with the congregation loudly saying them along with the pastor. I felt nauseated afterwards. Listen, in the past, false teaching was often subtle, hard to see. Well, that still happens. But listen, here's what I'm seeing. It is now bold, and it's brash, and it's blatantly unbiblical. Friends, you and I must work to keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is the gospel. Number five, trust in God's firm foundation. Now, as we watch what's happening in culture, and that was my reaction when I saw this, I'm like, oh, oh. As we hear about churches moving away from sound doctrine, as you see your own friends caving and believing lies from the world, it's easy to become unsettled, isn't it? But notice the first part of verse 19. We're given truth to trust in but God's firm foundation stands. That word but means nevertheless. So whatever's happening, this is what we know to be true. The firm foundation is the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I thought it'd be helpful for us today to do a congregational response. I'm going to read a phrase, and I'd like you to answer with Scripture right there, but God's firm foundation stands. And I'm going to read 10 statements. You respond after each one, but God's firm foundation stands. Here we go. When Christians are being canceled in our culture, say, but God's firm foundation stands. When you are ostracized for speaking up for the preborn, say, but God's firm foundation stands. When you are criticized for holding to a biblical view of gender and marriage, say, but God's firm foundation stands. As things go from bad to worse, we'll be in that passage next week in chapter 3, say these words, but God's firm foundation stands. When you hear of churches falling headlong into heresy, say, but God's firm foundation stands. When we look around and we see our country's foundations crumbling, say, but God's firm foundation stands. When you experience pushback or persecution because of your faith, say, but God's firm foundation stands. When sin celebrate it. Say, but God's firm foundation stands. When you are shut down, when you proclaim Jesus as the only way to be saved, say, but God's firm foundation stands. When you're fearful about the future, say these words, but God's firm foundation stands. Say these words all this week when you encounter things that are unsettling. Let's be reminded, the church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. 1 Timothy 3.15, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, and then he calls the church a pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We called this series, this summer series, Standing Firm on Purpose. That's what this short book is all about. The church of the living God cannot fail because it rests on the eternal promises of God. God is still on the throne. Friends, the main thing is to keep the gospel the main thing. Well, now it gets a little more personal. Number six, set yourself apart as holy. We see how salvation brings security, and now we're urged to seek our sanctification. Join me in the second half of verse 19. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God gives his stamp of approval, his authenticity of ownership to those who are his. Now, in order to cut this section of Scripture straight, we need to go back to Numbers chapter 16. Here's the backstory. A man named Korah decided to rebel against the authority of Moses and the authority of God. Moses proposes a test. Korah and his followers did not pass the test. As a result, God opened up the ground, I wonder what that was like, and swallowed the rebels, including their families and all their possessions. Furthermore, fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were part of Korah's rebellion. Now, with that in mind, Paul draws two applications for Timothy. Number one, he reminds Timothy of God's responsibility. So that phrase that you see here in 2 Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his, comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 16, verse 5, where we read, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. Listen, if you are on the Lord's side through the new birth, you are secure because the Lord knows those who are his. He knows those who are his own, and he will not let them utterly fall. Well, observe, there's also a responsibility that we have here. The second phrase in 2 Timothy 2.19, here it is. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now that comes from a vivid verse. Numbers chapter 16, verse 26. Depart, and you see the word please Depart, please. Why the urgency? Why the tenderness? Why the appeal? Here's why. Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of their... Don't even touch it, lest you be swept away with all their sins. Friends, you and I are secure in our salvation, but we must stand aloof from sin we, by departing from iniquity. Well, now Paul changes metaphors. He does that often in this book. He goes from a building to a household. Verses 20 and 21, he talks about worthy vessels and unworthy vessels. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. So in our context, that would be like the good china, the good, the good stuff that you only bring out once in a while. And then he says, but also of wood and clay, the everyday stuff. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So some pots were used as, well, they were used as bedpans or garbage bins. The more expensive ones well, they weren't used for that. They were brought out for special purposes. But here's the point of this passage. No matter what kind of container we are or how dirty we have been, we can be cleansed for honorable use. And notice, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready to. For every good work. Listen, if you've been living in the garbage can of life, Jesus can clean you up and use you for his purposes because the gospel changes everything. Do you believe that, church? Yeah. Check out what Tim Chester writes. We think of holiness as giving up the pleasures of sin for some worthy but drab life. But holiness means recognizing that the pleasures of sin are empty and temporary while God is inviting us to magnificent, true, full, and rich pleasures that last forever. Number seven, here's Paul in prison. He's like a, in a pit in the ground. He's about to have his head taken off. He's about to be martyred for his faith. He's writing to young Timothy. And this is what he says next. Timothy, flee youthful passions. To flee means to escape or move hastily. The phrase youthful passions can refer to longings or lusts. My mind goes to Genesis chapter 39. Joseph is alone with another man's wife. It's Potiphar's wife and nobody else is around. She tries to seduce Joseph. And listen to verse 12. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Proverbs 6.5 says, save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. We're not to play around with temptation. John Stott writes, we're to recognize sin as something dangerous to the soul. We're not to come to terms with it or even negotiate with it. We're not to linger in its presence like Lot did in Sodom. On the contrary, we're to get as far away from it as possible, as quickly as possible, because sometimes flight is better than trying to fight your youthful passions. Get out of there. Beth and I recently watched the new film, Sound of Freedom. And people ask me, do you recommend it? And uh, I, I would say yes, because of the message, but it's deeply troubling. It's a story of a former government agent who embarks on a dangerous mission to rescue hundreds of children from sex traffickers. It was painful to watch, as we're reminded how children are experiencing unspeakable horrors at the hands of perverted and depraved people. The middle of the film, the words of Jesus are quoted, Mark 9, 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The International Justice Mission estimates that 50 million people are held in slavery today. Human trafficking generates about $150 billion, with a B, dollars a year, with two-thirds coming from commercial sex exploitation. Now, one reason we're repulsed by that, and we should be, we must be, we must be repulsed by this sinful wickedness because... Children are made in the image of God, and as such, they have dignity and value and worth. Friends, we must protect the most vulnerable and do all we can to rescue them. Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Friends, so here's what I want to say. We can no longer say we know nothing about this. I mean, part of us doesn't want to know about it, but we have to know about it. And that excuse, we know nothing about it. We, we can't say that. We must do what we can to hold back this flood of wickedness perpetrated against children. We must stand up and speak out. Now, here are some ways that come to mind. Number one, be aware and be informed. Thankfully, over the last several years, uh, several industries have done a lot of training of their employees. I think of the trucking industry. I think of truck stops. I think of hotels and airlines that are doing increased training to spot trafficking and report it. Secondly, parents, be vigilant to protect your children. It's important to recognize that pedophiles are sometimes those we would never expect. Now, I, here's something I'm saying now that I'm a grandpa. I, I would just say, use caution about allowing sleepovers. Make sure you teach your children what is inappropriate. Right. Thirdly, if you've been abused, and some of you have, I can't even imagine what you still live with today, There's help, and there's hope. Edgewood offers Celebrate Recovery every Friday night, and there's a group for women who've experienced abuse. We can also put you in touch with a trained Christian counselor if that would be helpful. Next, flee from pornography. Studies have shown that the porn industry often uses underage children. In addition, unbridled, unchecked lust can lead to all sorts of depravity. I saw a very powerful tweet this week. Check this out. Men, if you've seen Sound of Freedom, you want to do something substantive about the trafficking of children, the answer isn't in paramilitary strategy. It's actually far simpler but much more difficult for too many men. Stop watching pornography got pretty quiet in the room, didn't it? Next, support the efforts of the Quad Cities Missing Person Network. I serve as the chaplain of this group, and I see firsthand how important it is to share posts of missing children and pray for them to be found. And you're like, well, that can't happen here. Listen, think about the Quad Cities. Think of all the interstates running through here. There's a lot more trafficking that goes on in our own community than we even know. And there are still people missing, and nobody knows where they are. I think of Della Brill's son, who's been missing for six or seven years. There's a woman named Sandra who lives in Walcott, and she's been missing. In short, if you see something, say something. Proverbs 31 says speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute speak up and judge fairly defend the rights of the poor and needy God's children are not for sale. We support so many different Go Team partners. One of the couples we support are Manuel and Kim Contreras. They serve Christ in Fresno. They're going to be here at Edgewood August 12th and 13th. We'll hear more from them. I had the joy of visiting them about seven years ago out in Fresno, and I saw firsthand how Kim is ministering to those women trapped in trafficking. And she posted something yesterday on Facebook. I'm going to read just part of it, and perhaps this will resonate with you. We've also sent two other teams. Um, I think I see Amanda. Amanda. you were out there, right? And I think a number of other people uh, were there. This is what Kim writes. Are you trying to process what you saw on Sound of Freedom? I would love to encourage you if you're not sure what to think or do next. It is a process Jesus weeping over Jerusalem comes to mind. Over 30 years of having relationships with survivors, if I tried to help them move forward in the awkwardness of next steps. So here's what she suggests. Lament and pray, learn more, volunteer or inform the place you work About human trafficking and then donating I hadn't thought of this but she said trafficking is a billion dollar money generator and the ministries and nonprofits involved are not finally if you see something that you flag as possible human trafficking you can always call the National Human Trafficking hotline so Paul gives this command to Timothy. Timothy, don't cave and fall into your youthful passions. Don't just do whatever you feel like doing, whatever your body's saying to do. He says, flee that. But would you notice, it's not just don't do that. He now gives a positive imperative in the second part of verse 22. And pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The word pursue means to go after, flee from that, chase after this. What do we chase after? That which is right. We're to exhibit faith, practice love, pursue peace with other believers. Friends, the main thing is to keep the gospel the main thing. And finally, number eight, correct people kindly. Man, we don't see a lot of kindness in our culture today, but followers of Christ are called to treat people kindly and gently. I'm in the second part of verse 24, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Friends, it's normal and natural to get angry about the onslaught of evil in our world today. But here's what I want to say to that, and I'm saying this to me. We need to remember the devil is our enemy, not the person who has unbiblical views or lifestyles. Many are held fast in a snare, in a trap that they can't get out of on their own. They've been caught by Satan, and they're being held captive to do his will. And I confess that sometimes in my speaking out against what is wrong, I forget that people are made in the image of God and therefore matter to him. Now, I'm going to remain convictional about sin, but I want to make sure I'm always compassionate towards sinners. Or to say it another way, let's love those who sin differently than we do and stop thinking our sins smell better than other people's sins. I don't want to ever compromise on truth, nor do I want to clobber those who are being held captive by the evil one. In short, I want to be more like Jesus, and I know you do as well. It was said of Jesus. He was full of grace and truth, John 1, 14. We have an example of that, a model of that. Jesus ministered to the woman caught in adultery, and would you notice he gave grace to to the sinner. Jesus stood up, said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Oh, that's grace. But he does not stop there. He told the truth about sin go. And from now on, sin no more. And so we must speak truth in a spirit of gentle graciousness, something I don't always get right. My college roommate, Bruce, modeled this when I was a jerk to him. Before I was saved, he kept loving me, which eventually led me to Christ. Well, here's what we've learned today. You'll see it up on the screen. In a message called, When the Foundations Are Destroyed, Ray Pritchard writes this, we need tenacious, winsome courage. Tenacious means we don't give up loving people. Winsome means we don't lose our temper and say something stupid. Courage means we speak up and we take a stand for the truth. Fear not, child of God, no one knows what will happen tomorrow but our God is faithful to keep every one of his promises because his firm foundation stands. Beth and I went to the Beyond Van Gogh immersive experience this past week. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. At the same time, I was struck by how lost the man Van Gogh was. He reminded me of the searcher in the book of Ecclesiastes, that he could not find satisfaction under the sun. He painted with these beautiful colors. He could paint the stars, and yet he missed out on the one who made each of those stars and calls them by name. He was a tormented soul who eventually took his own life, as far as we know, never putting his faith in Christ. Friends, never forget, there are people today falling off the cliff of sin into the never-ending fires of hell. So let's not be content with a quarrelsome or cantankerous spirit. No, let's make sure we're rightly handling the word of truth and we're offering it graciously to those entrapped by the evil one because the main thing is to keep the gospel the main thing. I'm going to invite you now to close your eyes and I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Perhaps today, if you're engaging online or right here in this room, you're like, man, I'm not ready. I haven't had my sins forgiven. I want to be born again. I need Jesus. Well, you could pray this prayer along with me. God, I admit that my soul is dark. I admit that I'm in my search for that which matters. I've hit dead ends, and I've made mistakes. I've wounded people with my words. I've done things that I'm embarrassed about. My attitude stinks. I'm just in a bad place, and I'm ready right now to call it what you call it. I am a sinner, and I'm lost Jesus, thank you that you came to earth and you died in my place on the cross, paying the price for every one of my sins, even those unspeakable ones. And when your blood was shed, God the Father accepted that blood as full and final payment. Thank you, Jesus, that you were raised from the dead on the third day. That shows me that you have power over the devil, over death, and over my own depravity. And so I turn from how I've been living and I turn now to you. Save me. Come into my life. I receive you, Jesus, as my Savior, and I want to, I need to, I'm ready to bow before you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to live for you in this world today. Use me now for your glory, for your purposes, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to chat with you after the service. Pastor Kyle's over there as well. Thank you so much for gathering with us today. If you don't have to scoot out, turn and introduce yourself to someone sitting next to you. Have a good rest of the day.